Welcome, fans of the Justice League universe. My name is Sam. In this podcast, myself and a group of insightful contributors share our analysis of the Warner Brothers films that are part of the Justice League universe, also called the DCEU. In this special episode, we are celebrating the one-year anniversary of the release of Suicide Squad, a film written and directed by David Ayer, with cinematography by Roman Vazianov, music by Stephen Price, and it was produced by Charles Roven, Richard Suckle, Jeff Johns, Deborah Snyder, Zack Snyder, and Colin Wilson. Suicide Squad was released on August 5th, 2016, as the third installment in the DCEU. As I'm sure you are all aware, it was not a success with the critics. It received a 40 on Metacritic, which is not terrible. It's still in the mixed range, even though films are regularly down in the negative range, like 20s and 30s. But 40 is definitely below average in terms of critical reception. But even with that, the opening weekend for Suicide Squad was huge, pulling in almost $134 million in the U.S. That is the biggest August opening of all time, and it was the 20th biggest opening ever. Suicide Squad went on to have a very strong worldwide run of $745 million against a budget of less than $200 million. And they did that without getting a release in China, which is the second biggest movie market in the world. The success of Suicide Squad extended beyond the box office to really strong home media sales, the eighth best-selling movie in 2016, and it's still maintaining a pace as the eighth best-selling movie of 2017. There's tons of licensing based on the movie's strong artistic style and cast of characters. For example, I heard that Harley Quinn was the most popular Halloween costume last year. And there's a soundtrack album that opened at number one on the Billboard charts and has since gone certified platinum. The film also benefited from a diverse cast and a diverse audience. It had a woman co-lead in Harley Quinn, played by Margot Robbie, and also two women as villains in Amanda Waller and Enchantress, played by Viola Davis and Cara Delevingne. Surveys also showed about 46% of the opening weekend audience were women, which is higher than most comic book movies, though not as high as what Wonder Woman accomplished recently with slightly more than 50% women. The cast of Suicide Squad also included many people of color, including Amanda Waller, but also Deadshot, El Diablo, Killer Croc, Incubus, and Slipknot. And post-track data on the film showed that African-American and Latino moviegoers made up 41% of the audience for Suicide Squad, which is substantially higher than average for movies. And those subgroups rated the film highly, giving it an 81 out of 100. It was also better received by younger audiences than older audiences, with the vast majority of people under 35 rating it an A or A- on CinemaScore, whereas people over 35 tended to give it an A- or a B plus or lower. So even though the critics were not very happy with it, the Academy voters did recognize its award-worthy hair and makeup, bringing the first Oscar to the DCEU. And Suicide Squad found lots of popular success with a diverse audience. And the proof of the success is in the pudding, because the Warner Brothers executives were openly boasting at their shareholders' meeting about how successful Suicide Squad was, building upon the success of Batman v Superman in the spring of 2016. And because Hollywood is a business, you can tell that the business people are pleased with Suicide Squad's performance because they are actively developing not only a sequel, but also a possible spin-off with Gotham City Sirens. Now moving in more narrowly to the DCEU fandom and its reaction to Suicide Squad, and the JLU podcast is part of this DCEU fandom, it seems fairly clear that Suicide Squad is considered the weakest of the DCEU films. I say this not only because it's ranked as the worst of the four by most of our JLU podcast team, but also because I've seen several Twitter polls where Suicide Squad ended up at the bottom, and I saw a thread with dozens of explicit rankings from confirmed DCEU fans, and literally every single one that I saw had Suicide Squad ranked fourth out of four. 
Now, I know that none of this is scientific evidence, and many of these people that I'm looking at are BVS fans, so it's a biased sample, but it's still some evidence that Suicide Squad is the weakest in the DCEU. And I haven't seen any tangible evidence of another one of the films being the weakest, among DCEU fans, that is. But Suicide Squad coming in as fourth is really more of a testament to the high quality of the other three films, and not necessarily to the weakness of Suicide Squad. Man of Steel and Wonder Woman are two well-crafted origin films that do a great job of setting up character mythology and complex motivations and relationships for the central hero. And if you've listened to our podcast at all, you know that we and many, many others view Batman v Superman as a cinematic masterpiece. So BVS set a gold standard that is hard for any other movie to live up to, so Suicide Squad pales in comparison. In terms of our podcast, we have had some critical things to say about Suicide Squad, and we'll mention some of those briefly in a bit, but hopefully those critiques just show that we try to give thoughtful and insightful analysis of these movies. We're not just here to fawn over the DCEU and bend over backward to praise everything they do. We critique things when we see flaws, and we praise things when we see high-quality filmmaking. As for our BVS analysis, it was almost entirely positive because that film, in our estimation, is just that good. And it stands up to scrutiny and interpretation extremely well. As for Suicide Squad, it doesn't hold up quite as well to scrutiny, but it's probably not fair of us to judge it by the standards of Man of Steel and Batman v Superman. Even though Suicide Squad's in the same universe, those Zack Snyder movies were doing something different than Suicide Squad was trying to do. And so recognizing the different goals and judging Suicide Squad on its own terms, I think it comes out in quite a bit better shape. For example, I've given Suicide Squad a hard time because Enchantress's machine and her motivation don't seem to tie in with the overall themes of redeemability and the power of human connections. But that's me looking for Man of Steel or BVS-level literary coherence, when that's not what Suicide Squad was about. It's not trying to be a deep literary work on the level of Dostoevsky or Hugo. As David Ayer himself said on Twitter after opening weekend, it's just a fun summer movie with a good heart. So that should be the basis for evaluating Suicide Squad. Articulating the goals of Suicide Squad further, David Ayer in a Rolling Stone interview said, quote, I wanted to take these comic book characters and make them as psychologically realistic as possible, with a living history, a soul, and a real biography, and then ground them in our world as much as possible, while at the same time keeping it loud and fun and servicing all the things a comic book movie needs to do. End quote. So with regard to those goals, we think it did deliver in terms of having interesting characters with compelling backstories with souls, and it was loud and fun. Now, recognizing that Suicide Squad and Batman v Superman had different goals, and recognizing that they both met their goals to a large extent, it becomes clear that a part of the reason that myself and many BVS fans like BVS better than Suicide Squad is because we like the goals of BVS, its ambition and its complexity with mythological dramatic weight. But all people are absolutely still allowed their opinions. People are allowed to detest heavy movies like Batman v Superman. It's fine if that's not the kind of movie that they enjoy. And I can connect with and love more deeply the thematic masterpieces like Batman v Superman, while still recognizing that not every movie is trying to be that sort of thing. Indeed, I don't want every movie to try to be a thematic masterpiece with literary illusions and multi-layered motifs. That would be exhausting for me as a moviegoer if every movie was like that. It's great to have a mix of movies, with some that are dramatic, some that are comedies, some that are romantic, some that are avant-garde, and so forth. 
A mix is good, and it's cool to have a mix even within the DCEU itself. And yes, people can prefer certain types over others, but it's not fair to judge movies based on the wrong metrics. So the main point here is that we think Suicide Squad does much better under the metric of fun summer blockbuster with interesting characters than it does under the metric of literary masterwork. And I'm saying this largely just to remind myself of that point. That being said, throughout our analysis, we still found some flaws that can be criticisms even within the appropriate frame of reference for Suicide Squad. Here are a few of those flaws. The action scenes were kind of run-of-the-mill. They didn't do anything particularly new or inventive. Their settings were sometimes kind of generic, and they sometimes lacked the real tension of a top-notch action scene. But they can still be fun, even if they don't blow away the audience like the Battle of Smallville or the Martha Rescue, and even if they don't inspire awe like No Man's Land. The editing of Suicide Squad was uneven and a bit clunky at points. For example, on the micro-scale of editing, they failed to build tension for the first helicopter crash or for the build-up to the Ostrander building fight. There was a lack of flow and continuity in some of the cuts, as we've covered in our prior analysis. On the macro scale, the editing and the storytelling together were a bit jumbled. We mentioned in the episode for scenes 22 and 23 that the point of view could have been more purposeful and consistent, and that would have cleaned up the multiple introductions that happened in the beginning and the slightly awkward twists and reveals near the end. Even David Ayer himself has admitted that a flaw might have been the mysticism of Enchantress as the main villain, and that maybe he should have started out the squad more street level, for example using the Joker as the main villain. We can see what Ayer is getting at, but we also think it was kind of cool how Amanda Waller was actually the main villain of the movie, and Enchantress could have worked as a supernatural threat in the absence of Superman, but she just should have been tweaked to more closely connect to the other themes of the movie. All that being said, David Ayer did support his movie, and he said it's a good movie that has a real heart to it, and we want to join him in giving some final credit to the movie. Here are some of the really positive things about the movie in our opinions. It did have some coherent and consistent thematic content, particularly with respect to criminals having souls and having complex emotions like regret and love and loyalty. And there's also the theme of friendship being more powerful than leverage, which is a good statement about human nature that is an important philosophical point in a broad sense. And it's also a point that a story like Suicide Squad is uniquely positioned to make, given its characters with explosives literally inserted into their necks. There's a lot of leverage being applied to them, but in the end, friendship still ends up being stronger. The movie had very memorable character designs and personalities, and they mixed together in very interesting ways. The characters were definitely one of the strong things about this movie. Um, one of the positive aspects about the characters is related to their Academy Award for hair and makeup, but it's also just the unique blend of characters from Harley and Joker to Deadshot and his rivalries with Griggs and Flag, and then Diablo and Boomerang, Croc and Katana. Even though Enchantress wasn't my favorite, there are people who really liked her, and I admit the smoky version of the witch was pretty cool. And I personally really like this take on the Joker, and I'd like to see him again. And Amanda Waller, behind it all, was really great, and she's pretty unique for a comic book movie villain. Suicide Squad has a cool style, built around its incorporation of music into the story and into key scenes. This may not be to everyone's taste, but if you go with the flow, it does make for a pretty entertaining film with a lot of personality. And finally, just to reiterate what David Ayer said, this summer blockbuster did have heart. We think the heart came through especially well with Deadshot and Zoe, Harley Quinn and her messed up love story, and also, of course, El Diablo. To me, the heart between Rick Flagg and June Moon didn't quite work, but the camaraderie of the team was more important, and that one did work well. 
So those are some of our final thoughts on Suicide Squad. Overall, it's pretty amazing that the movie that we consider the weakest in the DCEU still managed to make $745 million worldwide, break into the top 10 for home media sales, and win an Oscar. If this is the weakest offering of the young cinematic universe, then things are in very, very good shape. All right, so that is our analysis for Suicide Squad. And now the other part that we want to have here for the special episode for the anniversary of the release of Suicide Squad is we want to answer some listener questions. A lot of times we get down to business here on this podcast all the time, so this is just a chance to have some fun and also increase some communication between us and the listeners. So we got some great questions, and I kind of grouped them together. The first cluster is going to be about the DCEU. The second cluster is about DC and the comic books more generally. And then we have some questions that are about the podcast itself and some miscellaneous ones at the end. You're going to hear some answers from myself, from Alessandro, uh, Sydney as well, and then uh, Nick or Rebecca, if they have answers, I'm just going to share those with you, uh, reading from what they wrote in our little shared document. So we'll share kind of a you know variety of answers to your questions. Um, I don't know if I gathered everybody's name, and I also don't know if I can pronounce everybody's name, so I'm not actually going to read the names, but we have followed everyone back who asked a question, I believe. So that's a way for us to stay in touch, uh, and thank you to everybody who did submit a question. We really appreciate all of the interaction from you. So first, the DCEU-related questions. First of all, here we have, what has been your absolute favorite moment in all of the DCEU thus far? So for me, I would say it's Superman in the explosion at the Capitol building in BVS. Uh, In that moment, I empathized with Superman probably the most that I ever have in any Superman story. He was already feeling all that pain of the controversy that was around him, the controversy and the protests and the debates that he never asked for, he never wanted, but they were swirling around him. And even the people praising or worshiping him, that's not what he wanted. So everything leading up to that moment on the Capitol, him thinking hard about how to handle the situation, and then leading up to it, he decides to humble himself in front of the people and their representatives, and he's going to try to answer their questions and explain himself. So he's really saying, like, okay, maybe if I do this, it's going to help reduce people's fears. Um, But then for all of it to go horribly wrong before he even has a chance to speak, That moment just made me feel so bad for Superman, and it made me really mad at Lex. Um, And I also appreciated how the filmmakers found this new way to challenge Superman, not through a physical threat, but through the complexity and tragedy of life and human behavior. Um, People also say that Superman is overpowered in general, and so you can never really put him in jeopardy. But for me, this moment is how you threaten Superman. You hit him emotionally. So we're going to have some answers here from Alessandro and Sydney, and also I have an answer first from Nick. Nick said his favorite moment is seeing Zod and Superman crash through buildings while they were pummeling each other. So Nick, uh, who was our one of our contributors on the Suicide Squad analysis, he has read comics for years and years, and that kind of imagery of Zod and Superman fighting each other is what he always wanted to see in a superhero movie, and he appreciated how there were repercussions to that fight, um, leaving lots of people dead. And when you have two man-sized mountains fighting for their lives in the middle of a crowded metropolis, you're not going to have a few broken storefronts and some smashed cars, there's going to be a death toll. Um, Between the Black Zero's crater and the destruction caused by Superman and Zod, Metropolis, uh, the part right there in the destruction zone, it ends up looking more like the aftermath of a World War II battle. And for Nick, that makes total sense as a way that a battle would turn out between two Kryptonians. For Nick, he just loved seeing Zack Snyder rip those images straight out of the comic books and painting them beautifully and reverently on the big screen the way that only a Hollywood production can. So all right, now we'll have some answers from Alessandro and Sydney. You, my friend, have a date across the bay. Ripe fruit, his hate. 
Two years growing, but it did not take much to push him over, actually. Little red notes, bing bang, you let your family die! That moment in BVS when you realize Lex orchestrated everything like the mad genius he is, is my absolute favorite moment in the DCU so far. Really, it's the whole helipad scene, but I suppose that's longer than a moment. But that moment when you find out that Lex knows Clark Kent is Superman was a surprise and a vindication of the character over the several movies he's been in. But with the knowledge that Lex knows Superman's identity already under our belt, to discover that Lex has spent the better part of two years planning in exhaustive detail the inescapable fall of Superman in part by manipulating Batman, it's like gold kryptonite, precious to any Lex Luthor fan. Does every moment count? But honestly, there are too many great DCEU moments and my personal favorite changes all the time. Special love goes to the rooftop scene with Lex for all the reasons Alex mentioned. It was chilling from the very first time I watched it, back when I still didn't quite know what to make of the film's portrayal of Lex, and it just got better and better as my appreciation for Jesse Eisenberg's performance grew. I also adore any moments between Clark and his mom, such as the I'm not going anywhere scene in Man of Steel, and the scene where Clark calls her in the middle of the night for reassurance. Sweet and totally relatable. Next question. Do you believe the rumor about Wonder Woman 2 being set in the 1980s with Chris Pine returning? So I believe that that idea is part of the conversation about a sequel, but I don't believe that anything has been locked down in terms of the setting or the story or the casting. Um, so I don't think there's actually been a firm decision about what's going to happen. I think they're probably exploring possibilities, including they're thinking about if they can bring Chris Pine back as Steve Trevor or a descendant, um, but it might not happen. If they go into the past, if that's the decision that they make, then I think the 1980s with the Cold War is very likely, but they might also go with a present-day setting for the Wonder Woman sequel. So I think that'll be decided soon, but honestly, I think it's just a rumor at this point. We don't know for sure. So to believe or not to believe, a rumor really has no significance. Uh, as far as what I think of the idea, it could be interesting if they apply some sort of spy game type of plot but I'm curious how they would apply Wonder Woman in costume to it and who the villain would be. Uh, I think it would be better to just do a present-day movie, uh, as Sam mentioned, they might do. Well, I won't believe any story rumors until the camera actually starts rolling. But I like the idea of another Wonder Woman movie set before the other DCEU films, because then they can tell another self-contained story without having to involve other DC heroes. However, I'd prefer it to take place back on Themyscira or some other fantasy place, because otherwise there might be a continuity error with the walking away from humanity line from Batman v Superman. What's next for Lex Luthor? Or, in particular, what do we want to see for Lex going forward? Um, so for me, I would definitely like to see Lex Luthor again. He's a villain that I really loved. I thought he was amazing. And the way that he ended in BVS, I think it's great to see like this next version of Lex Luthor as well after he's lost and he's had to learn how to lose um, and now the shaved head and going forward. So I'd love to see him in some way. I think he could be a good support character for another villain. Um, like He could be trying to strike deals with Darkseid or he could be trying to strike deals with Brainiac like it's, hap it's happened in some of the comic books. Um, so so I think he could be this kind of side manipulator along with some other villain, uh, so he could work that way. Um, I think maybe a Justice League 2, maybe a Man of Steel 2, he could still fit into. Uh, and I think, you know, he's going to be showing up in Justice League, but it's probably going to be something very small. But I hope we see him again in a medium to large sized role. 
One way or another, I think we will see Lex liberated from Arkham, or wherever they hold him, since the Arkham mention was only in the extended cut. But I'd love to see a, a Lex Brainiac team up in, say, Man of Steel 2 or 3. Uh, I could also see Lex helping in defeating Steppenwolf or Darkseid in some capacity, given my own, own interpretation of the character from BVS. Uh, I'm sure Sam would wholeheartedly disagree with that potential outcome, though, given his particular perspective on the character. I expect Lex is going to regain control of his company somehow, because he's clever like that. Then I hope he will have a large role in future Superman solo films, making a public show of supporting Superman, because that's where public opinion is now in the films. I want to see Lex rebuild an aura of trustworthiness, so even if Clark knows he's up to some plot, he can't do anything about it, at least not publicly. I'm really excited to see more of him, too. And now a question about Superman. Why is Superman buff? He can't do resistance training. Nothing gives him resistance. All right, so there's a few ways to come at this question. Um, first of all, he did grow up on a farm from an early age, so he's maybe been doing heavy lifting and hard labor and things, uh, maybe at earlier ages that helped develop muscle tone before he got to his full peak, you know, physique. Um, we can also consider biology. Perhaps it's just Kryptonian DNA that leads to the, you know, musculature, um, or maybe it's because he was not created in a Genesis chamber. Maybe that makes him bulkier than Kryptonians who are more genetically modified. Um, but I would also another way to think about it is just you can bear in mind that the Superman in the DCEU is not as strong as some of the comic book incarnations of the character. Um, take the oil rig rescue, for example, from Man of Steel. He has to really strain and exert himself to hold up the steel structure. So that takes effort. He's very strong. He's superhumanly strong, but it's not like the DCEU Superman can lift a key that weighs 500,000 tons. That's one billion pounds. And yeah, in the comics, sometimes Superman can lift one billion pounds. But given the strength level of the DCEU Superman being much, much less than that in the comic books, he could actually work out and build strength through means that are readily available on Earth. For example, he could lift, you know, train cars or he could lift really heavy things that are around. And if he had to strain against that steel structure, he would also strain against these other objects and that could build his muscle. The questioner is right that Superman's strength doesn't come from his rippling muscles. It comes from the solar radiation that powers his cells. So even if he were pudgy, he'd still be super strong because of that solar radiation. But the muscles, nevertheless, they do help. And no matter how strong he is, I think he can actually do resistance training because he could push one arm against the other arm. Or he could flex and release his own muscles and then build muscle strength through his own resistance, basically. Alright, next question. In Man of Steel, the scout ship makes the Superman suit. Does that mean that the ship is from the House of L? So the ship was actually captained by a person from the House of L. That was Kara from the prequel comic to Man of Steel. But I take it to be a Kryptonian 3D-like printer um, that was in the ship. So it could have made anything that the AI Jor-El wanted it to make. So I think it was the Jor-El AI that asked for it to be, you know, the House of L emblem on it. And that 3D printer could have made something else if he wanted it to be something else. Now, you might be thinking that because that scout ship was captained by Kara from the House of L, that maybe it was an L scout ship. 
But remember, it was sent out actually by the council from that time, and the Kryptonians were exploring the stars and sending out lots of scout ships. So those scout ships were probably equivalent to government property that were just captained by a member of the House of El. And the suit was, you know, we think probably created by the ship per A.I. Jor-El's specifications. Now, this question might have come up because of the hologram that was in the Justice League Comic-Con footage um, and where Bruce is maybe looking at some things and there's a hologram of a Superman-like character. So maybe the scout ship and more information is going to come into play in Justice League. Maybe Bruce Wayne now is trying to get information from the scout ship, just like Lex Luthor did in BVS. So that'll just be fun to look forward to in the fall when we see Justice League. All right, next question. What does Killer Croc add to the Suicide Squad story and themes? Um, and this questioner was not sure that Killer Croc really added very much. So I agree that Croc did not get much of an arc, and you could even say that his physicality was underutilized, but I do think he added to the story and themes. He was an explicit version of the monster that society makes all criminals and convicts out to be. So because of this, he embodied that theme that criminals should not be disregarded, but should still be viewed as people with souls. In that way, he contributed to the overarching theme that everyone on the squad played into. More individually, he also contributed to the specific idea that maybe society actually creates the monsters by prejudging them and then treating them as monsters. Maybe we not only deride and disregard criminals after they've committed crimes, but maybe we also make assumptions about people based on how they look or some other superficial feature, and then we set these expectations that end up being self-fulfilling. Croc was also used in the beginning pretty effectively as a contrast to Waller. She is respected and in a position of power, she is treated well and looks presentable, but she's actually a monster. He looks like a monster, but maybe he wouldn't have been one if he'd been treated better. Croc kind of rounded out the team in terms of power as well. Sure, he didn't add much to the story, but neither did the radio operator in Platoon but you still need a radio operator. And the squad definitely found some use for this big powerhouse. And he did play an important role in defeating Incubus, and it was, you know, his part of, you know, kind of making sure that the Navy SEALs could actually go in there to set off the explosive. All right, what future movie in the DCEU after Justice League are you most looking forward to and why? So for me, uh, this movie is not officially on the slate yet, but there's a lot of talk about it, and I would say that the next Superman standalone movie is the one that I'm most looking forward to. I love this incarnation of Superman the most, and I was a big Superman fan even before Man of Steel, but this universe has taken him to new depths. And I also love what they've done with Lois and Perry and the Kents, so I want to see another movie that's fully dedicated to those characters. In terms of the ones that are officially on the slate right now, after Justice League, I'd probably say Shazam is one I'm look, really looking forward to, and that's largely because I have uh, two young boys who will be in elementary school by the time that movie comes out, and I think it will be great to go to the theater with my boys, um, as long as director David Sandberg doesn't make the movie too scary with his horror background. But I think it'll be fine, because Warner Brothers and New Line have said that they want this to be one of the titles that is fairly humorous and family-friendly, and, you know, I don't mind movies that are sometimes that way, even though, you know, kind of my favorite sort of movie is like Batman v Superman. For Nick, he is also really looking forward to Man of Steel 2, and he's hoping that Matthew Vaughn is selected to direct, um, and he wants a Man of Tomorrow kind of thing, is hoping that Warner Brothers doesn't screw it up. Um, other than that, Nick is looking for a Green Lantern movie, so he's very excited for that buddy cop version that'll be Green Lantern Core. Um, so Nick that is really excited for that one, and yeah, Green Lantern, I think it'll be cool to see another version of that in this universe. Can I say I'm looking forward to Justice League Part 2? <laughs> 
Aside from the League, I'm interested to see how they handle the Green Lantern Corps, especially after the Green Lantern movie debacle. Uh, as far as which movie I'm most excited about, probably the Batman, assuming Ben Affleck is on board, because I can't get enough of him as Batman. I would have placed Flash ahead, but I'm waiting to see Ezra Miller as Barry, as I'm not totally convinced yet that he fits the character, and I'm nervous about the rumors that his movie will focus around Flashpoint Paradox, which has the potential to really screw with the DCEU, and seems a bit premature given they haven't laid down the important foundations and groundwork for that storyline. Definitely Flashpoint for me. I don't think it's going to mess with the DCU timeline as much as people think, especially because I have yet to see a live-action superhero movie that is a perfect adaptation of any one comic book arc. Um, I'm hoping it will feature, at the very least, Thomas Wayne Batman, a conflict with the reverse Flash, and a personal story involving Barry realizing the dangers of his time-traveling ability. That last point will be especially important, since I believe his arc in Justice League will be all about developing and finding joy in his abilities. Flashpoint would be the dark point in his trilogy, so to speak. Also, Flashpoint Batman. All right, moving on to the questions that are about DC in general or about the comic books. The first question is just simple. Uh, what graphic novels are your favorite? So I'm going to let Alex and Sydney start. There are still quite a few graphic novels that I own but haven't gotten around to reading, including the new Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles run. But I really like Superman Red Sun and, of course, All-Star Superman and Kingdom Come as well. And if you consider omnibuses in this, then I would certainly include The Death and Return of Superman and Infinite Crisis. I love Superman Birthright, The Dark Knight Returns, the entirety of the new 52 Batman run, and The Omega Men. Also the manga series Full Metal Alchemist and Vinland Saga. I also recently finished reading Preacher, which was fantastic and reminds me that I need to read more Vertigo comics. As for me, I've read several of the classic graphic novels like Watchmen, The Dark Knight Returns, uh, and also All-Star Superman and Kingdom Come that Alex mentioned, but those actually aren't my personal favorites. My favorite is probably Prez by Mark Russell and Ben Caldwell. Uh, and then I would give an honorable mention to Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Changes Constant by Tom Waltz and Dan Duncan. And then, yeah, like Sydney said, um, the Snyder Capullo run on Batman in the New 52 era was awesome, especially Volume 1, Volume 2 about the Court of Owls were really great. All right, who are your top 10 favorite DC superheroes? Not villains, superheroes. So for me, this is tough, but I'll give 10 that are in no particular order that I really like. Superman, Batman, Jessica Cruz, Cyborg, Shazam, Captain Marvel, but I'll call her Shazam, New Superman, Martian Manhunter, Raven, Wonder Woman, and Aquaman. Wow, top 10 favorite DC superheroes. That's a lot to ask of. <laughs> I'm um, guessing I can't include villains, since the question specifically asks about superheroes. I guess, in this order, I would say Superman, Booster Gold, Batman, Dick Grayson, Barry Allen, Hal Jordan, Ragman, Kyle Rayner, Tim Drake, and Captain Marvel, which they've now started calling him Shazam. Uh, of course... If I could include villains, I'd definitely include Lex Luthor, Superboy Prime, and Mr. Mixes Pitalik. Ah, this is hard. But based on the comics, and in no particular order, Batman, Aquaman, Jessica Cruz, Wonder Woman, Mr. Miracle, Superman, Nightwing, Green Arrow, Catwoman, and John Constantine. If he counts. I don't know. <laughs> 
So next up, we had a few questions about the podcast itself. Um, so starting with just a basic question of how was the podcast created? So uh, I started the podcast by myself, and I have done lots of audio recording in the past, and I even had a podcast, I still do a podcast that's related to my work, and that's called the Math Ed Podcast, because I'm a researcher in the teaching and learning of mathematics. But I wasn't actually planning to do a Justice League Universe podcast until basically the weekend that Batman v Superman was released. I watched BVS twice opening weekend, and I had long conversations with my wife and then with some friends about the movie. We all really liked it, and we realized that a big reason we liked it was because it had so much complexity and thematic content, and we liked it the more and more we talked about it. So I basically just wanted to take the time to go through the movie in detail. And I figured if I was going to do that, I might as well record it and then share it with others. And so then that's how the podcast got started just a few days after BVS was you know, released. And as you know, this is basically an audio podcast that I just happen to throw up on YouTube for those who prefer to listen on YouTube. But there's a separate story for the creation of my YouTube channel. My wife's family is from the Detroit area in Michigan, and we were there visiting in the summer of 2014. Because I was a huge fan of Zack Snyder's Man of Steel, I was following info about the production of Batman v Superman, and I found out online that BVS was filming in Detroit in the summer of 2014, with an exterior set that was built in the Corktown area of the city. So during our summer vacation, I just slipped away for an afternoon to check out the set and see what I could see. Uh, it was the set that was the collapsed uh, Wayne Financial Building that was in Metropolis from the beginning of the movie, with lots of debris and some crushed buses and cars and stuff like that. So I thought I was just going to go and admire the set. But it just so happened that they began active production on the set the same day that I went there. And I got to see Zack Snyder talking to Ben Affleck, and Ben was going in and out of his trailer a couple times, trading off with his stunt double. So there I was standing on the sidewalk across from the set, and I was not planning to kind of like snoop like this or whatever, but I did happen to have my family camcorder with me because we were on vacation. And so I got some shots of Ben Affleck in his Bruce Wayne outfit. And that turned out to be the first ever image of Affleck as Bruce Wayne. No professional photographers were there, and so my photos and my videos that I put up on YouTube went viral. Uh, people were curious to see Affleck's dusty gray temples and the wreckage of Metropolis and his blue vest and stuff, uh, and then seeing Bruce in Metropolis, and people could kind of figure out, oh, this must be the Black Zero event. So all of that kind of excitement came out of these images that I grabbed on that first day of production there, active filming there. Um, and then after the success of my first visit, just, just was just lucky, basically. Um, but I went back again the next day just to see what was going on in day two. Um, but when I got there, they had blocked off the set with a big sheet, so you couldn't see anything really that was going on. So I talked to a couple professional paparazzi that were there now, and they said uh, they're going to pack it in because there was no visibility because of that big you know thing blocking their view. So they actually left... And I had driven in there, so I'm like, well, I'm just going to hang around a bit longer. Um, and then when I was hanging around there by myself now, because the paparazzi had left, lo and behold, they suddenly just took down the sheet. I don't know why. Um, maybe Warner Brothers wanted a little bit of set coverage to leak out. I don't know. Maybe they decided, hey, we'll let them see a little bit of this. Um, but anyway, they took that down, and I was still the only one there. And then I got to see Affleck 
staging with Zack Snyder his rescue of that little girl at the beginning of BVS. Affleck ran through it once with the beam falling down over his head, and then after that the stunt double did it several more times. So that day I got even better footage the second day, and eventually my two days worth of visits ended up with more than a million views on YouTube, and so that's what actually started my YouTube channel where I throw this podcast. Have you ever thought about doing podcast episodes on the trailers or on movie news about the production of the DCEU movies? So yeah, I've thought about that, um, but for the Justice League Universe podcast here, I've consciously decided to avoid that kind of stuff, like the marketing, the trailers, the weekly news, that sort of thing. My approach has been to focus on the creative works of the filmmakers, their finished products, basically. I figure there are plenty of other places online to get coverage of the movie news and hot takes and responses to the latest rumors, so I don't need to add to that pile of things. Um, to me, it's a shame that some fan sites spend hours and hours on every poster and trailer and anything an actor says, um, hours of that, and then they do one episode, like 50 minutes, on the actual work of art itself. They call it a review episode and then they move right on to the news and rumors about the next movie. What I'm trying to do, and what I've been trying to do with this podcast, is I'm trying to create some space to really dig into the films and spend our time there as a way of honoring the creative efforts of everybody involved. Now, that being said, I do have a blog, comicandscreen.blogspot.com, where I give myself more leeway. I'll post about box office analysis and comic books and trailer reactions. And don't get me wrong, I'm very glad that some people do cover the movie news and the production updates and everything. We need some people covering that. And I like keeping up to date on that stuff. Um, and I use the Suicide Squad cast mainly to keep up to date. And that's a podcast that we recommend in each of our episodes. There's some good folks over there. Uh, they're covering all that terrain. Um, so for me, they've got it covered. Lots of other people have it covered. So I just don't think there's a, a need for another podcast on that kind of stuff. And because that stuff is well covered... I want to add to the film analysis side of things where there isn't quite as much content online. How did Sam and the co-writers or the contributors um, get connected? So like I said, I started the podcast by myself going through Batman v Superman and it wasn't really planned. I just kind of felt like, oh, this is going to be fun. I'll just do this. And I only made it about 10 episodes before I realized that I probably need some help. So Alessandro had been listening to the podcast and he had left some really great insights in the comments. So I had noticed that, and I was kind of impressed. I'm like, oh, cool, he's seen stuff that I missed. So I just asked him to join on as a contributor, and that helped a lot, bringing an extra perspective to catch things that I missed or to just interpret things from another angle. Um, so that was good to have two sets of eyes on everything in BVS. So Alessandro and I made it through BVS together, and we also started in on Suicide Squad. But to be honest, the two of us didn't really love Suicide Squad as much as we did BVS. So when things got pretty busy with Wonder Woman recently, uh, and we were still analyzing Suicide Squad, I thought that it might be a good time to bring in some reinforcements. So Nick Begovich, a Suicide Squad fan who I knew from Twitter, he was brought on to help us finish the analysis on Suicide Squad. And then with the popularity of Wonder Woman, I asked Rebecca and Sydney to join our team for the Wonder Woman analysis. I had listened to Rebecca for a long time on her podcast, Supergirl Radio, and I also knew her as one of the champions of BVS on Twitter uh, and on YouTube. Um, so you should definitely follow Rebecca at Derby Kid. And then Sydney had left some really great comments on some of our BVS episodes, so I knew she was a regular listener. And then she really got my attention with her insightful analysis of Bruce Wayne's character arc 
in our Batman v Superman anniversary episode. And she's at WonderSid on Twitter. So they were my two top choices for people that I hoped would join the podcast for the Wonder Woman side of things. And I was really happy when they both were willing to help out. So in short, we all got connected online through our mutual appreciation of the DC films and especially BVS. And if you're curious about our process, we use Google Drive as our writing platform where I have sectioned off uh, an outline for each movie, and that way we can drop notes and interpretations or questions right into each particular scene. And then uh, we all drop in notes, and then before recording, I look through our collective notes, and I write that up into a script. That's what you hear on the podcast. And if you ever want to search through the contents of the podcast, or if you just prefer reading instead of listening all the time, all of our transcripts of our analysis are compiled on comicandscreen.blogspot.com. Who are some of your favorite directors not associated with the DCEU, or at least not yet? Um, For me, mine are probably not going to be affiliated with the DCEU, but my favorite directors are probably, um, outside of the DCEU, are Stanley Kubrick, Alfred Hitchcock, and the Coen brothers. I don't necessarily follow directors per se, but I have very much enjoyed films by J.J. Abrams, The Wachowskis, and Christopher Nolan. Some of my favorite directors are David Fincher, Christopher Nolan... Hayao Miyazaki, and David Lean. I really like epic storytelling. What can I say? All right, and I can also say for Nick, uh, some of his favorite directors are also Kubrick, Matthew Vaughn, and then the Coen brothers as well, the Wachowskis, J.J. Abrams, and Brad Bird. And our final question here, what are some current TV shows that you really enjoy? Um, Current ones or past TV shows that you enjoy? So for me, currently, The Simpsons are still going strong, and that show has a special place in my heart. There's also Modern Family and then Supergirl. In the past, I really love Star Trek The Next Generation, um, also Breaking Bad, and then MASH, I think are really great shows, too. Lately, I've been watching Black Sails, Fargo, and Preacher. I was a big fan of Fringe and True Detective back when they aired as well. There are so many TV shows that I really enjoy. Designated Survivor. Past shows I enjoyed included Dollhouse, Lost, Firefly, Breaking Bad, but of course there are lots more. I mean, I could go on all day, you know, like Quantum Leap I really love, Uh, but I should stop there. (laughs) I think that's plenty to go on. Although I do want to add 24 I just absolutely loved, and ever since I watched that show, every, every other show seems sort of a letdown because 24 was so action packed that I find every show that I watch nowadays is kind of boring. For Nick, he said that Glow was great, and there's always Rick and Morty, and he also has been watching a lot of King of the Hill, and he recommends Powerless, not because it's great, but because it actually is pretty funny and makes some pretty good deep-cut DC references. So if that sounds like something you like, then that's worth checking out Powerless, which is now canceled, but you can find the episodes from NBC. And Nick says about Powerless that fire is in this show, so that's got to be worth something. And then Rebecca, uh, she's busy right now and didn't have a lot of time to answer some of these questions, but I do know about Rebecca that she loves Lost, and of course there is Supergirl, which she covers on Supergirl Radio. All right, so that's a bit of insight into those of us that are bringing you this podcast. If you have more questions, the best way to find us is on Twitter at JLU Podcast. But you can also leave a comment on YouTube or on our podcast website underneath this episode. I'm usually hanging around there so I can see your comment and I'll try to respond if I can. And thank you so much for listening. We have now posted our complete analysis on two movies in the DCEU, and we will spend the next few months on Wonder Woman. And then, of course, it will be all hands on deck for Justice League this fall. 
Thanks to all the contributors, Alessandro, Rebecca, Sydney, and Nick. And thank you all for listening. We really appreciate the support. And the final thing to do is give our shout-outs to the Suicide Squadcast and Man of Steel Answers. And in case you're curious, no, Tim, Scott, and Doc do not require me to mention them every time. And they don't pay me to do that. It's just that their podcasts inspired me to create this one. So I always try to acknowledge them, and I really do encourage you all to check them out if you haven't already. Long live DC.